Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. There's a YouTuber I follow named Daniel Green, whose channel, which is called Daniel Green, is devoted mostly to books, but it addresses other bits of pop culture, media, and mostly, almost entirely, it's about science fiction and fantasy, which is not really in my wheelhouse, but in the same way that I like to hear people riff about the Beatles, which, which is music I don't really listen to, and even more than that, I love following really animated discussion channels about Star Trek, even though I've never seen an episode and have no interest in doing so. I follow Green's channel, I've followed it for years, and I listen to his discussion videos, his reviews, and the reason I follow and listen is because he's good at talking? I, I don't know. That is not a good answer. But when I ask myself why, of all the discussion videos that I watch about these random topics that cultivate such a fandom, that get so heated, I don't really follow any particular channels. Yes, I watch the most heated conversations where people rail against the latest iteration of Star Trek, but I don't follow those channels. I just look for the most heated, controversial videos. With Daniel Green, however, I follow the channel, which means that I'm exposed to the scope of his own natural interests in these two genres that don't interest me at all. And when I ask myself, why do I spend so much time watching this dude talk about books that I know I will never read, movies and TV shows that I will never watch, interpretations and dissections of all this industry and fandom drama of which I will never take any part, I ask myself that question and my mind kind of wanders. And for some reason, what comes to mind first is an interview with the novelist Mark Z. Danielewski, whose father, apart from being a filmmaker, was also was also apparently a World War II veteran. And at one point, he, Danielewski was asked by an interviewer, did your father ever tell war stories to you and your sister? And Danielewski said, no, not really. But he, he, he kind of yes, though. He kind of did tell us stories between the lines of things. And to give an example, Danielewski recounts this episode from his childhood. He's maybe, you know, seven or eight years old. And he's at a grocery store with his father and his sister. And at this grocery store, there are several checkout lanes. And there are long lines in every lane. But as the minutes tick by, different lines are proceeding forward at different speeds. And as certain lines are getting shorter, Danielewski's father grabs his kids and hustles them over to the shorter one. And if another one gets shorter than this one, he hustles them over to that one. And as he's doing it, he's getting visibly more agitated and urgent, as though there is something greater at stake than the couple minutes they might lose by lingering in a slow line. But eventually, I, I don't know if Mark asks his dad what was going on, but his dad says something to the effect of, never, never stand in a slow line. But he says it with this mortal, urgency. And Danielewski points out in the interview, like, somewhere within that behavior, somewhere within that statement, you could see the outline of probably some wartime trauma. Daniel Green posts his video discussions pretty regularly, and in the comment section you can see the liveliest conversations. And it's, it's fascinating because I watch his discussion video, I, I pick up his vibes, whatever his message is that he's conveying, but what you see reflected in the comments, which are mostly populated by people who share his enthusiasm for these genres, is an illumination of how many puns, how many, e how many Easter eggs, how many references 
were laden throughout his conversation, and you had no idea. I had no idea. I, I thought I understood what the guy was saying because he speaks clearly and well and succinctly, but I didn't. And it reminds me how when I was in middle school and in high school, I was so envious of my brother, my, my sports-obsessed brother, for the fact that at any time of day, he could put on ESPN, especially during the summer. And while ESPN, the sports network, didn't really have to show a lot of sports, it did have many shows in which grown men wearing suits were just enthusing about sports. And yeah, it's not like he was having a conversation with, with the TV. It's not really a back and forth. It's a one-sided pleasure. But it's almost like church. It makes you feel like you belong to something, a tribe. The philosopher, pop philosopher maybe, Slavoj Žižek, he has this compelling, if kind of bizarre, idea that part of the reason Americans really like sitcoms is because at the end of the, at the, end of the day, when you're tired and there's a primetime lineup of them, a popular sitcom manages not only to entertain you, but with the help of a studio audience, it also does the laughing for you. A sitcom never puts you in a position of wondering if you've missed a joke or if something has gone over your head. It is both an emotion-stimulating piece of entertainment and a guide to that entertainment, something that cues you about what you're supposed to feel and when you're supposed to feel it. And that idea fits kind of weirdly with this book that I'm reading. It's called Opposable Thumbs by Matt Singer, which is his brilliantly titled history of Siskel and Ebert, which is the talk show that kind of changed television in a weird way. On Siskel and Ebert uh, through the 80s and the 90s, what you saw was a pair of 30-something and then 40-something and then 50-something reporters. On the one hand, you had the tall, skinny, prematurely bald Gene Siskel, and on the other hand, you had the short, chubby, prematurely white-haired Roger Ebert. And these two dudes, on what was ultimately a, a widely syndicated show, their job was to sit in plush chairs and argue about movies. These, incidentally, if you didn't know, these are the critics who came up with that two thumbs up, two thumbs down uh, review system. These guys were colleagues, but they were never really friends. Occasionally they were enemies. It was the first time that there was serious and consistent conversation ab about film. Roger Ebert loved to tell a story that he later heard from Jack Nicholson, where early in the show's run, this must have been the early 80s, Jack Nicholson is sitting at home and he gets a call from Harry Dean Stanton. And Harry Dean Stanton is frantic and he goes, Jack, turn on the TV. There's these two guys talking about movies and they don't look like anyone on television. The reason that this little public access show blew up into like a hugely syndicated phenomenon is because even the people who didn't care that much about movies just became seduced by the quality of the discussion. Gene and Roger would go on Letterman and they would argue. They would go on Johnny Carson and they would argue. They would go on Jay Leno and they would argue. And it seems like one of the first instances in TV where networks acknowledged that the topic of conversation could be less important than the energy. Two people who are great talkers, who have great chemistry, then it's kind of like what Harold Bloom said about Shakespeare. He said, whatever theme interests you, whether it's feminism, colonialism, whatever, if you look at one of Shakespeare's plays through the lens of that theme, it, it probably won't light up the play. But if you look at that topic through the lens of Shakespeare, Shakespeare's language will illuminate the topic. So, why the interest in Daniel Green's channel? What is it that he's doing that's kind of different from what these other vloggers are doing? Kind of like Mark Danielewski's father in the slow grocery line, 
or like Siskel and Ebert on their 80s TV balcony. He's having an energetic conversation about something that he consumed and enjoyed, and he is riffing about how that thing fits within a tradition of things, and he is telling a story between the lines of these monologues. His monologue is the story of how he reacted to another story, and as one review leads to another, those collected stories of his reactions to stories, they cohere over time into this larger narrative about how a certain person's passion for a certain kind of story both reflects and facilitates his own personal growth. If that makes sense, maybe he loves a book today that down the line, as a parent, he won't be able to enjoy anymore because his life experiences have changed his attitude about that subject matter, or vice versa. So it's like you watch this channel, you follow it chronologically, and you're seeing the story of someone's growth reflected in a way that they react. But the story is being told by way of reviews and discussions. It's both kind of the story of a journey, the story of a character's development, but also a story about stories. How if you take in enough stories, suddenly there's a story there about how those stories influenced you. Which, you know, as far as I can tell, is the best and most bottomless kind.